welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Kemper Donovan. I'm Catherine Broback. And this week we are back to Catherine's favorite Christie detective, one Parker Pine heart specialist. She is so oh. excited. No, we we are still in our happy place here with these Parker Pine stories abroad. We are enjoying them. We shall see if our enjoyment continues today with The Pearl of Price. Can you tell us a little bit about the publication history, Catherine Brobeck? Yes, I can. It was first published in uh, Nash's Pall Mall in July 1933, together with Death on the Nile and Oracle of Delphi, under the title More Arabian Nights of Parker Pine, just in case we didn't already have enough Arabian Nights of Parker Pine. <laughs> and it was um, titled The Pearl, so very slightly different. And then it was uh, later published in November 1934 in the UK by William Collins and Sons in Parker Pine Investigates. The Pearl is very John Steinbeck, isn't it? Very much so. And actually easier to remember than The Pearl of Price, because every time I looked at it, I kept reading The Price of Pearl. I think The Pearl is definitely a better title, although I think our relationship to it is warped by the John Steinbeck short story, because was Mm -hmm. that shoved down your throat? in middle school also. Yeah, like, I feel of course. Like every, mid, every middle schooler in the U.S., I think, has to read The Pearl and be scarred by it because it's a really dark, really depressing story. And usually along with The Red Pony, they like come together as a set, these two Steinbeck yeah. short stories, The Pearl and The Red Pony, and they're both a real treat. I'm actually a huge Steinbeck fan. I actually love Steinbeck, but I almost didn't make it in seventh grade through those two stories. Yeah, um, I mean, there are a bunch of those, like, seventh grade. I think a lot of it, um, Ambrose Bierce stuff, mm-hmm. you know, that mm-hmm. also comes up in about seventh grade. Yeah, I guess we can take a lot in seventh grade. but I um, don't know. I mean, the incident at Owl Creek Bridge has probably forever scarred me, so... <laughs> <laughs> well, the funny thing, though, about this title, we might we may as well just continue talking about the title because my one big note on this story actually has to do with the title. The Pearl of Price, I believe, is a little bit of a wordplay on Christie's part because there is this notion of the Pearl of Great Price, which is an idea that's very central in the New Testament. <laughs> and it's actually also the title of a fundamental text within the Church of Latter-day Saints, more commonly known as the Mormon Church. Um, like one of their foundational texts is called the Pearl of Great Price, and it comes from this New Testament story. It's making reference to the fact that in the same way that someone back in the day might sell all of their earthly possessions for one single pearl of great price because pearls were kind of held out as like the most precious jewel that one could have back then. It was more about pearls, I suppose, than diamonds. So too is the kingdom of heaven. Like the kingdom of heaven is as priceless as this single pearl that one would sell all one's earthly possessions for. It's just a phrase that sort of has these 
allusions of pricelessness and the sacred and the invaluable and sort of the limitless idea of that. By the time we get to the end of the story, I think we'll see how it's kind of a funny little wordplay that she's doing because of where we go with the pearl that's actually appears in the story. So I appreciate that she's doing a little bit of punning slash wordplay by calling it the pearl of price and leaving out the great there. That makes a lot of sense, actually. All right. Well, let us discuss our victim. Unfortunately, or perhaps fortunately, since we like to shake it up every now and then, this is not a murder mystery. This is one of Christie's jewel heists or would-be jewel heist stories involving, surprise, surprise, a pearl. Um, So the victim would be the owner of that pearl earring, Carol Blundell who is the daughter of an American millionaire, and she keeps losing her $80,000 pearl earrings. They just keep falling out of her ears, and she uh, finally loses one of her set while this group of tourists is traveling through Petra. Yikes. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, $80,000 pearls in 1933, by the way, that's a lot of money. Yeah, and apparently they are like these huge things that she wears at all times. So the suspects, well, we have her father, said American millionaire, Caleb Blundell, who is a, um, to say that he's a braggart would be an understatement because (laughs) essentially his only topic of conversation is his massive wealth. And he's also a giant jerk and something of a let's be honest, giant racist to the staff at Petra at the camp. By the way, the pearl earrings actually are worth $80,000. I believe I misspoke earlier, but we are dealing with Americans here. So they are $80,000 pearls. In 1933, $80,000 was worth $1.5 million today. Golf clap. (laughs) (laughs) I wish we could see those earrings, honestly. I just imagine that they're really big pearls because they're not described as anything else. It's not described as though they have any setting in them because that's actually going to be part of the plot. Right. Like, are these pearls as big as golf balls? I'm beginning to actually understand why they're dropping out of Carol Blundell's ears all over the place. I think they might be too big to be earrings. (laughs) Right. Well, regardless, who's our next suspect? Our next suspect is Jim Hurst who is Blundell's secretary. I believe he's described as as secretaries so often are in these Christie novels. He's dark and good-looking, if somewhat taciturn. They're usually just like generally pleasant, inoffensive people in these stories. Right. Then we have Sir Donald. Sir Donald Marvell, who is a British MP, who appears to be courting Carol. Um, He's very much a stuffed shirt. Next up, we've got Dr. Carver, who is a British archaeologist. Hmm, exciting. And then we have Colonel Dubos, who is a French colonel. <laughs> There's not a lot more there. <laughs> I mean, so so often I feel like in these Parker Pine stories, we have a, one character thrown into the mix whose only characteristic is their nationality. <laughs> right. All right. Let's talk about the world as it appears to be. Parker Pine is traveling. Yeah, so last time we saw him, he was in Shiraz in Iran slash Persia. And he has now moved on to Jordan and specifically the Rose Red City. 
of Petra, which we have seen before, first in Appointment with Death. It's where much of that book takes place. And he is traveling around with a a little tourist group, as he so often does within these stories. And they're sitting around their camp. They're going to visit a historic site the next day. And Dr. Carver is telling them the history of this historic site. And he mentions that the ancient peoples who lived there, the Nabataeans, they would charge people tolls to come through this area. So that was one way in which they made money. Caleb Blundell, blustery American millionaire that he is, dominates the conversation largely by bragging about his massive wealth. Everyone quickly gets very irritated with him. And uh, no one more so than Dr. Carver, the archaeologist. And we, it is also very much noted that Blundell's daughter, Carol, has these massive pearl earrings on her that, once again, are worth apparently $80,000, 1.5 mil, and that she is constantly losing them. So the Blundells leave to go off to bed, during which we get some um, off-screen shouting from Mr. Blundell, which is pleasant, yelling at the staff. And um, I think he is underestimating the help. Yeah, he is. Definitely so. Proving himself to be very much a stereotype of an ugly American. But the men, once they leave, begin to complain at great length about Blundell and his unstoppable conversations about how much money he has and how easily he can afford to replace the earrings should his daughter lose them. And suffice it to say, everyone is very much rubbed quite the wrong way as soon as he leaves. Also during this time, Carver shows the group uh, this nifty trick involving plasticine and an ancient stone like scroll, which when you roll it, it creates uh, a scene involving offerings to the rich and presumably Hammurabi. Yeah, and it's funny. This story was published in 1933. That's soon after Christie's marriage to Max Mallowan, famed archaeologist, and and when she was. I think doing a lot of archaeological stuff with him and really into it. And you can, I think, feel the, there's the specificity there where you know that this is something she actually did and saw and that she's relaying this from life. You can tell. Yeah. And it's like, again, the conversation here gets much more interesting once the Blundells leave because they don't seem to actually care about being in Petra so much as they care about talking about themselves. Yeah, I mean, it actually reminds me a little bit, some of that specificity of de- of detail reminds me of what she was doing in Murder in Mesopotamia also, which of course all takes place at a dig or mostly takes place at mm-hmm. a dig. You know, that was published in 1936. So we're in and around the same time. And I just think that that early mid 30s period was one where she was really steeped in these archaeological goings on as something new. Not that she hadn't done it before Max Mallowan and not that she didn't continue to do do it for many decades afterward, but it just, it feels, you can feel the excitement over the archaeological hijinks, I think, in this story and certainly yeah, in that novel. Definitely so. Well, and also the import that people place on archaeology. Yes, absolutely. The next morning, the group tours the site at Petra, and Carver in particular is very dutifully studying the ground for shards. He is an archaeologist after all, so I suppose I he has like, to... There's, there's like a, a joke about it, right? Yeah, there's a joke about how um, archaeologists never look at the skies. Right, yeah. <laughs> you know what? And I don't know if we've ever explicitly stated this on this podcast, but now is as good a time as any that apocryphal joke 
that Christy is supposed to have made. It's wonderful being married to an archaeologist because the older one gets, the more interested he becomes in one. She never said that. It does not seem a very Christy-esque thing to say, to be honest. It's charming, and she could be self-deprecating, certainly, and it's a clever joke, but she was actually very self-conscious of the age difference between herself and Max. I mean, it's one reason why she initially refused him because she said, you shouldn't be marrying someone as old as I. And he finally convinced her that he wanted to marry her. And the rest is history, as they say. She also took the archaeology of it all very seriously. Yeah, yeah. It's all a bit too jocular, I think, about her relationship than she ever would have been. But it's one of those things that's just stuck. You come across it all the time with Christy. Like, oh yeah, and she said that funny thing about being married to an archaeologist. And Anyway, just worth noting that she never said that. So we've got Dr. Carver sniffing the ground for shards, and while everyone else is marveling at the sights, Carol notices... She lost one of her pearl earrings even after she had Dr. Carver tighten it for her. And they'd all thought that they'd heard it drop, but the earring just is nowhere to be found. So deciding that it has to be one of the men in the party, i.e. someone other than Carol, who has stolen it since they've only been around each other all day, Carol is sent down the mountain, which sounds like a euphemism for something, but isn't. And the other men agree to be searched, each in turn. It's all very, and then there were none. Well, well, Miss Clayford. Mr. Lombard. including Blundell, Carol's father, and the earring is nowhere to be found. Back down the mountain, a terrified Carol comes to Parker Pine for help because her fear is that she's been irresponsible with these earrings and that Jim, her father's secretary, is going to be blamed for the theft because, you see, he had once been a thief and had stolen, in fact, from them years and years ago. But she had convinced her father to forgive him, and essentially he became their faithful lieutenant. And so this harkens back to a joke that is said around dinner that's very cutting and it makes everybody uncomfortable about once a thief, always a thief. Mm. And so... Now Carol is just fearful because she's in love with him. She wants to marry him. And her father is insistent she marry Sir Donald. But she has no interest at all. And she knows that Jim would never steal from her. Of course she's interested in the charming male secretary. I feel like in Christie, it's always the male secretaries who are the love interests as opposed to the forlorn governesses of a century earlier. (laughs) Right. But they fill the same function. It's like they're kind of the help, but not really. So they're in this cuspy role. And then the rich daughters uh, decide that they are going to set their sights on them. And then they raise themselves up that way. And then, yeah, ideally then those um, secretaries for very rich men will somehow end up working for the family company. Exactly. So... Parker Pine goes back to his tent to think on what could have possibly happened, and he immediately has an aha moment. That is aha. That's an aha moment. 
which gets us to the world as it actually is by way of a couple of clues. Before we get there, I just have to say I'm a little disappointed that we didn't get the newspaper ad reprinted in the story. Well, no, but we do have Carol asking. She makes reference to it, right? Yes. Uh Uh-huh. If he can really make people happy because she's fearfully unhappy at this moment. You pretend to straighten out things for people when they are unhappy, don't you? She demanded. And then he says, I'm on holiday, Miss Blundell. I'm not taking any cases. Well, you're going to take this one, said the girl calmly. Look here, Mr. Pine. I'm just as wretched as anyone could well be. And then we go on from there. All right. Let's talk about our clue number one, which has to do with money. All this talk around money. So much money talk. Specifically, so much talk about how much money Caleb Blundell has coming from the man himself. And money is just so often very important in Christie. You know, we've actually come across this specific trope that is used in this story very recently. It's a classic one. And the idea that if someone is harping on the fact that they have all of this money and is perceived to be rolling in it, we should at least as astute readers question whether they, in fact, are as flush with cash as they claim that they are. We should be skeptical of those claims. Right. Absolutely. People who lost all their money in the market crash, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and the date of publication is almost a little bit of a clue there, too, because we are in 1933. So this is certainly a time where there are a lot of people who had been rich and may no longer be rich, but might be pretending to be rich so that they don't descend into a lower social circle. It's also that you fake it till you make it sort of mentality, or in this Mm -hmm. case, um, you know, occasionally in these stories, fake it till you make it back. (laughs) Totally. And one could argue that's also a, a particularly American thing to do. And let's just not forget that we are dealing with an American supposed millionaire. So, um, right. Yeah, we should just be very skeptical of Caleb Blundell's fortune. We came across a very similar setup in just our last episode, Yellow Iris. So clue number two, the dropping of the earring. We know the earring was going to fall out because Carver points it out to Carol. But he is able to tighten the earring back up because guess where he is? in the line of people walking around Petra. Is he in the back, Catherine? He might be in the back. (laughs) And so he tightens the back onto her ear. It's not like she has a mirror, though. And apparently she doesn't put her hands up, which is a little bit of a flaw in this story that we'll perhaps get to. But who also happens to be the person that we know to be the most seethingly resentful about all that money talk? It Mm. might have been the financially burdened archaeologist. And a corollary to this is that everyone's assuming that, oh, yeah, didn't we hear the earring drop? And it must have dropped because it was supposed to drop. But that is getting into the territory of trusting assumptions that, of course, it had to drop. And also trusting only one sense where there just seems to be a little bit of confusion or muddle over what actually happened. No one is actually saying that they saw the earring fall, which makes sense because if they did, then it wouldn't be lost, obviously, right? Like they would have picked it up right away. Also, the other sense, the other sort of 
clue here is who is the person who has spent the entire story picking things up off the ground? Hence his position as last among the party, too. He has slowed them down. That would be Dr. Carver. All right. Let's get to our resolution here. Parker Pine confronts, you guessed it, Dr. Carver, and asks to see that ball of plasticine that he had been showing them all the night before. Carver realizes the jig is up and he admits that he saw the earring fall from Carol's ear and then he picked it up to give it back to her, but grew increasingly resentful at how much money it was worth. I mean, he essentially had $750,000 in today's money in his hand and how many expeditions he could fund with that much money. I hope a lot. (laughs) So yeah, it seems like it would be. Yeah. So he rolled the earring into the plastic to scene that he was holding and drew attention to her lost earring by poking her in the ear with the point of a pencil and then (laughs) sure and then trying to find a round stone that i guess he could press against the lobe to simulate putting it back on her ear right well and supposedly it's probably one of the things that he's picked up when he keeps picking things up off the ground because then he later finds a round stone which is presumably also the one that he pressed against her ear it's the one that he pressed against her ear right i actually don't completely understand the blocking of this because the stone didn't stick on her ear obviously i mean he was he then had the well, stone and if in these his things pocket are, right and if these things are huge you would have to think that feel it yeah, you have to feel the weight of it. Right. You would have to assume that her earlobe would notice if there was nothing there, you know, stuck through it. Like, how did she not n- notice that? Any woman who has ever worn any kind of earring, whether it's earrings that require a piercing or clip on earrings, you feel those. It's and clever. It's clever, but, but for the fact that if she's wearing a massive pearl in her ear... She would feel you know. its absence. Yeah. It just doesn't make sense that poking her with the point of a pencil and putting a stone up to her ear and then necessarily removing the stone, like, she'd know that the stone was being removed right after that and she'd be like, uh, you didn't put it back. One would think maybe she has very desensitized earlobes. <laughs> From wearing such heavy pearl earrings all the time. I, uh, listen, and I I will say, as somebody who does not have pierced ears and who has worn heavy vintage clip-on earrings, you do damage the cartilage in your earlobes. Maybe this is a cautionary tale in addition Perhaps to... Perhaps it uh, is. Yeah. What happens next, Catherine? Carver basically asks if Pine is going to tell Blundell because he's like, yeah, I just, I really intended to give it back. And then I was just mad and I kept it in my pocket. And Pine says to him, well, (laughs) guess what? He is pretty certain that Blundell's not even going to ask what happened to the earring because those earrings are fake $5 knockoffs that he's been lying to his daughter about in order to cover the losses in their wealth from the market collapse. Which, again, is why calling this story the Pearl of Price with that reference to the Pearl of Great Price is clever. So, yeah, Parker Pine manages not only to clear up that little mystery and completely let Dr. Carver off the hook. I suppose he seems to think that Dr. Carver will think better 
of it next time. Well, and, and as uh, we know, Parker Pine does not exactly have a lot of scruples. So, oh, no. in terms of immoral endings in a Parker Pine story, this is only like a two out of ten. It's not that bad. <laughs> Definitely so. Definitely so. So Parker Pine lets Dr. Carver off the hook. And we can surmise that there's going to be a happy ending for Carol because Parker Pine is now wise to the fact that Caleb Blundell does not actually have a fortune. And in that, the match between Carol and Sir Donald was apparently all about the money she would be bringing to him. It was your typical impoverished member of the British nobility marrying an American heiress. That seems to be what at least Sir Donald thought he was going to get out of this. That's not going to fly since they don't actually have any money, and Parker Pine is aware of that. And he has also now successfully exonerated Jim, the secretary. So Carol and Jim should be able to live happily ever after. We're not told that, but I think it's fair to assume it it seems how that's being set up so and that's what parker pine does the people who ask to be happy he makes them happy by hook or by crook and usually by crook (laughs) (laughs) that's the end of the story and we should mention his next journey is actually down the nile for the short story death on the nile which we already covered much earlier after we had covered the novel death on the Nile. So in any case, we will be skipping over that one within the collection, but we only have a couple more of these Parker Pine stories, and I, for one, shall cherish every one of them. Cherish our time together with Parker Pine. Is he making you happy? He is making me happy. The Stockholm Um, Syndrome has comfortably settled in. I do enjoy these traveling ones. All right. Well, join us next time for a mysterious Mr. Quinn story. This one will be The World's End. Speaking of collections, we are getting near the end of. Oh, that makes we are me also, very sad. Yeah, we only have a handful of the Parker Pines and a handful of the Quinn Satterthwaite tales. So let's really savor these, Catherine. They will be gone all too quickly. And of course, our next uh, much novel, like Mr. Quinn. <laughs> exactly. Not not quite as quickly as Mr. Quinn. They won't be jumping off a cliff into the sea. <laughs> Our next novel after that will be The Hollow, a Poirot. Very exciting. Yeah, and very much title. You know, there are a lot of title. yeah, a lot of fans of the Hollow out there. Yeah, I'm excited. I, I it's been a really long time since I read it, but I have fond memories of it. I'm very excited because I have a Fontana edition, Ooh. which are my favorite covers. So those are some good covers, definitely. They are. In the meantime, we'd love to hear from you. You can check us out on our Patreon account, www.patreon.com/slash/allaboutagatha. Our Facebook page is all about Agatha. Our Twitter account is at all about the dame Catherine's twitter account is at brobcat and we are on instagram at all about agatha please do take a moment to rate and review us because you are helping other people find the podcast and we love to read them and see what you have to say and we will see you next time bye bye, bye.